These are the drug addicts. They form a coherent group in every large city. They are known to the police. Almost all of them have long records, not necessarily for narcotic offenses, but through the constant criminal activity which pays for the drugs they must have. Drugs bring little real pleasure, but the addict needs them just to feel normal. Welcome. This is the Dr. Junkie Show. I'm Ben Boyce. A few years ago, I began producing a series of YouTube videos about the origins of the war on drugs. I wanted to share it with one of my classes. I originally planned to make three videos, each spanning about 50 years of U.S. history, starting in 1870, when the first laws restricting opium smoking started to pop up on the West Coast. Now, I finished two of those videos, but then things got weird. COVID hit, everyone was locked indoors, we teachers were forced to navigate an almost entirely digital space, and because of all that, the project expanded. Part three was never finished because it actually became 128 and counting episodes of this podcast. And in all the commotion, I somehow never shared the audio from those first original videos in podcast format. So today I thought I'd start that process with episode one, the United States War on Drugs from 1870 to 1920. Next episode, I'll share part two, 1920 to 1970. And hopefully by the following episode, I'll be ready to finally release part three, 1970 to 2020. If you prefer a visual format, you might want to enjoy this particular episode on YouTube. There's lots of videos and graphics that help explain the laws and the norms that I'm unpacking. You can find that video at the link in the episode description, or you can just search Dr. Junkie Show on YouTube. With that, enjoy this explanation of the first 50 years of U.S. drug policy. We have all been told a story about drugs and the so-called war against them. The story goes like this. If you use drugs, you will become addicted. Worse, once you're addicted, you will likely lose your moral compass and resort to theft, violence, or prostitution to support your habit. Your possessions will disappear, your goals will become unimportant, your family will be forgotten, and your skin will erupt in sores and pimples. Your life, in short, is over. So just say no. This story is a lie. Sometimes people get addicted to drugs, or to sexual behavior, or to gambling, or to religious fanaticism, to be sure. But in the United States, we have long recognized the value of the leash over the kennel. We restrict and regulate, but we seldom outlaw vice outright. There's too much money in it, to be quite honest. So why are drugs so stigmatized in the United States? This is the first video in a three-part series I'll be doing detailing the war on drugs. I've selected 1870 as a starting point because prior to that, there were no drug laws in the United States prohibiting any narcotics. But before we talk about the war on drugs, we have to talk about capitalism, the centerpiece of Western democracy. Throughout the late 19th and into the 20th centuries, you wouldn't go to the streets or to the dark web. You would go to the local drugstore. The pharmacist was trained by another pharmacist who was in turn, trained by another pharmacist who may or may not have received any sort of official medical education. If your stomach hurt or your toe was swollen or you just wanted to get high, one option was the pharmacy. You walk in, you tell the man behind the counter what you want, and he disappears behind a wall to concoct what amounts to a magical potion to fix whatever's ailing you. 
He may tell you what's in it, he probably won't. There were few regulations surrounding the sailor use of any intoxicating substances prior to 1900, and again, there were none prior to 1875 anywhere in the United States. This is what the drug industry looked like. But capitalism means competition, and it wasn't long before the pharmacist's bitter tonic was exchanged for the mail-order cherry elixir. By 1900, consumers could purchase heroin, cocaine, lithium, and morphine in tonics and potions sold at corner stores and even mail-order catalogs delivered right to your door. So the question became, why choke down your local drugstore powder when you can enjoy a nice cherry tonic instead? So the pharmacist fought back, installing the latest technological innovations, carbonated soda machines. Now they could mix their drugs with sugary syrups meant to hide the bitter taste. Most of the soda brands that are still on the market today were originally designed to complement the drugs that pharmacists were selling. The question now became, why choke down a warm, gooey cherry tonic that you bought in the mail when you can enjoy an ice-cold Coca-Cola purchased at the local pharmacist? But once again, capitalism pressed back, offering a more convenient product that wasn't confined to the soda shop. Many soda manufacturers began adding popular new drugs to their sodas and then bottling them for easy distribution, cutting the pharmacists out yet again. New wonder drugs were advertised. Cocaine and heroin were added to various products, advertised as adding a jolt of energy or as giving you a pickup. Ginger ale was introduced initially as a refreshing natural pep, as was root beer. And 7-Up was marketed as lithium-inclusive, meaning it had lithium in it. Seven is the atomic weight of lithium. To fast forward once more, soda no longer contains any of these drugs in the 21st century, but we still consume loads of it. The pharmacy added ice cream in an effort to push back against both bottled soda and, later on, against prohibition. And many of the soda companies had gained enough momentum and capital from pre-prohibition sales to remarket themselves as legitimate alternatives to the very drugs they once contained and were designed to act as chasers for. We still drink loads of soda today. So the big question, if drugs were legal in the United States, wasn't everyone a desperate addict? I mean, weren't people running around left and right, maiming each other, committing violent acts, stealing everything in sight? Weren't they all calling into work and quitting? Wasn't the world just going right to hell? I mean, that's what we've been told our whole life, right? The truth is that it wasn't bad at all. I mean, sure, some people got addicted to drugs, but they had no shortage of cheap, safe supply when that happened. They could also discuss their concerns with their doctors without fearing shame and or legal ramifications. And they could work with family members and friends to navigate their addiction without any fear whatsoever of tough love. Tough love wasn't a thing. It didn't exist. So prior to the war on drugs, families that discovered a family member was struggling with addiction were never prone to throw them out into the street or to tell them that they weren't welcome to the comfort of the family structure anymore. They were more often than not embraced and brought in and helped through whatever was going on. Incredibly, when drugs were legal, cheap, and socially acceptable, drug users and addicts seemed to fare much better than we currently do in our culture of prohibition. Three-quarter of addicts who were actively using when the surveys were conducted were employed full-time. When Sears and Robux would deliver a bundle of cocaine in a mail-order syringe to your door for $1.50, only 6% of addicts were poor. So to understand how U.S. citizens felt about drugs, we need to look at who was taking drugs and why they were taking them. 
So just a little reminder, the Civil War ended in the United States in 1865, and both sides suffered mass casualties as well as mass injuries, amputations, infections, and scars that resulted in lifelong chronic pain. Morphine was an obvious and affordable solution, and nobody thought ill of veterans who used it to ease the discomfort of war wounds. Further, nobody would have thought about restricting their access to it because quite often these drugs were a part of getting back to normal life. But opiates do have addictive qualities, as we've talked about, especially when the patient is also suffering from a life-changing injury or depression or a familial change or upheaval in their living situation. They treat emotional and spiritual pain every bit as well as they treat physical pain. This is actually part of the problem for many of us that get addicted to opiates. Some patients become addicted, and to be fair, this was a very real concern. But by and large, people just went about their daily lives, using opiates and other chemicals when they were helpful and suffering few social problems as a result. Medicine is becoming a very real craft and a desperately needed one at that. There are no antibiotics or immunizations. Germ theory is still in its infancy, and yet city spaces are becoming larger and more populated. The Civil War is over. Reconstruction is afoot in the South. People are migrating in mass to new cities and bringing with them evolved viruses and bacteria that people that lived there had not seen. Sick and ailing people need medical help. And once the pharmacist got a taste of the profits brought by consumer trust in this new field of medicine, they naturally wanted more. Treatments and medications outside of the Western norm began to receive the label of quackery, based in large part on the capitalistic standing of the practitioner. Now keep in mind, this is going on at the same time that doctors were using mercury to treat all sorts of ailments, both exterior and internally, and doctors were coating some of these pills that they were making in things like silver or gold, which are not digestible in the human digestive tract, and so they were having no effect. There was all sorts of quackery going on and experimentation all over the board, but it was Western medicine that in the end was given the endorsement of the government, and because of that, it had the power to delegitimize other forms of medicine and to stigmatize them. For many reasons, some good and some bad, the government began a move toward regulating, not restricting, requiring product labels to list ingredients for the safety of the consumer. The first federal law regulating drugs was the 1906 Food and Drug Act which required products to be labeled with the ingredients to promote consumer safety. There was no prohibition whatsoever in this law. It was simply a law designed to make sure that consumers knew what they were taking and how much. Colorado has recently passed similar laws related to marijuana use. There was no mention of outright prohibition whatsoever. So what happened? Drugs were cheap and legal. Drug users were not a social problem. The United States prison system at that point was 5% of its current size. And issues related to unlabeled and unsafe products were already being addressed. So why start a war in an obvious time of peace? Well, to try and understand why drug laws began to show up in a culture that seemed to have a pretty good grasp on intoxication, I want to digress and talk a little bit about the place where the first drug laws in the United States were enacted. San Francisco, 1875, the first anti-drug laws didn't prohibit opium. They prohibited owning or visiting a so-called opium den. So to be clear, pill poppers, tonic drinkers, and even heroin injectors were still free to go about their business, but anybody who smoked opium effectively committed a misdemeanor. There are two important elements to note in this law, which would serve as the recipe for all U.S. laws criminalizing drugs that would follow. First, this law seemed uninterested 
in the race, the religion, or the ethnicity of the drug dealer. None of these things are mentioned in the law itself. The second interesting fact about the U.S. first drug laws, which again were in San Francisco, has to do with the condition of San Francisco when the laws were passed. The city had experienced two separate economic booms, followed by terrible depressions. The 1948 gold rush brought a wave of prospectors and day laborers. The second boom came in 1859 when huge supplies of silver were discovered in nearby Tahoe. Both rushes brought masses of cheap laborers from Southeast Asia, mainly China. Both boom busts left scores of these workers without jobs and without prospects. As often happens in times of economic struggle, people look for someone to blame. And in the United States, we have historically turned to recently immigrated groups as scapegoats for our social anxieties. When business was booming, the cheap labor of recently immigrated peoples was great. Nobody paid much attention to the cultural habit that they consumed their opium by smoking it, whereas we tended to consume ours in the United States orally. No one cared. The white bourgeoisie was, after all, consuming the same drug. As long as the work got done and the pockets of rich white investors were getting lined, day laborers could participate in any vice that they wished after the workday was over without anybody minding. But once the economy took a turn for the worst, politicians and citizens alike began to blame their social problems on the immigrant workforce, specifying the cultural practice of opium smoking as responsible for causing laziness and immorality. And you'll see that this begins to show up in the newspapers at the time and in other prints and pamphlets as a way of attaching criminality to both race and drug use, and in this case, opium use. So something very important happens here, and it will become more important as we progress through the various stages of the war on drugs. In the late 1800s, the news media consisted primarily of print. The photograph was in its grainy infancy, and newspapers really couldn't figure out a way to mass produce the photograph until around 1880. And even then, they didn't show up very often. It was still costly to run a full photo in a newspaper. Prior to the 20th century, it was the cartoon drawing or the colorful headline that did the work of spectacle. In these photographs, which were mass-produced and then distributed throughout the country, drug use, a behavior that does not cause explicit social harm, is attached to other behaviors, many of which are immoral and or criminal. This recipe for racial stigmatization would stick. We'll see it for the next 150 years. Throughout the late 1800s and into the 1900s, newspaper looking to catch the reader's eye with salacious headlines and or titillating images resorted to doing the work of white supremacy. They provided viewers with a way to think about drugs as bad, as dangerous, and as criminal. And they did so by attaching them to bodies that citizens of the United States had already decided to stigmatize, fear, and oppress. In effect, the newspapers gave a new narrative to white folks who already had racial anxiety following the Civil War and slavery being upended. These stories gave them a way to talk about what was going on and to hold on to some of their deep-felt resentments and fears. Now in the next section, we're going to look at how this formula evolved and progressed. It was one thing for private citizens and newspaper owners to publish scandalous tales and racist propaganda, but once Uncle Sam began to apply his stamp of approval to the fear-mongering tales, the messages became stickier. They became easier to believe. But the government couldn't provide that stamp of approval because prior to 1913, a full 30 to 40 percent of the government's tax revenue came directly from the sale of alcohol. But in 1913, federal income tax laws were passed for the first time ever 
over permanently. Income tax was collected briefly during the Civil War, but permanently the government institutes this federal income tax based in large part on the supports of groups like the Temperance Movement and the Anti-Saloon League, groups that knew their support of the seemingly unrelated legislation would help their cause. Now, when the pendulum of policy swings hard in one direction, as happened with prohibition, it often swings back in short order. In 1919, just in time to avoid a U.S. census that likely would have shifted voting power from small towns back to large cities, the 18th Amendment was voted into law. It didn't take long, however, for U.S. citizens to realize that they had been sold a lie. Prohibition didn't stop people from drinking. It did, however, cause the price of booze to go through the roof. It also caused beer drinkers to turn to stronger spirits, since beer was almost unheard of during Prohibition due to its low alcohol content. Prohibition also introduced U.S. citizens to organized crime and characters like Al Capone. It became obvious very early into the so-called noble experiment of Prohibition that illegal markets would be impossible to eradicate. The violence and mayhem that followed bootlegging operations was unavoidable so long as they were forced to operate outside of the law. This is where we're going to start part two with a man named Harry Anslinger who was determined to secure his own chapter in the United States history books, even if that meant misleading the public and stoking up racial resentments. Thanks for listening. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. Addiction to drugs, too often acquired with tragic carelessness, may take control of a life and force actions not dreamed of before. To these addicts, life's only work is to find money for drugs. In their desperation, no means is too foul. Their only goal in life is to keep the deadening chemicals forever in their heart's blood.